Before we jump into this episode, I just wanted to let you know that the audio quality is not the greatest. However, I I do hope you'll stick with it. I think the information and the conversation was great, and I uh, think it's worthwhile to listen. I just wanted to let you know before you started listening. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Kanda Mason. Uh, I know her because I've participated in some of the work she does as Jubilee Justice, the leader of Jubilee Justice, which we're going to hear more about. She's a social entrepreneur, an earth and social justice activist, and a spiritual teacher. Uh, She's had a very, very interesting career and path that got her to where she is now. And I'm so delighted that she's agreed to be on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Kanda, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much, Peter. I'm so happy to be here. I'm just, um, it was wonderful to receive the invitation. So tell me, Kanda, tell us all a little bit about your career. You started out your career in, in as, an, as an artist manager. You started out as a, a Grammy award-winning artist manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you're, uh, uh, you know, leading the Jubilee Justice and also a rice farmer. So that's a very, you know, that's quite a path to go from, you know, Grammy yeah. award-winning artist manager to rice farmer in the South and, and running an organization. <laughs> and in the process also became a, uh, a, a beautiful Buddhist meditation teacher. So let's talk yeah. a little bit about the path of your career. Wow, that's interesting, Peter, because honestly, when I hear the word career, I don't ever use that word for myself. Um, career sounds like something that was intentional. Um, my, my path has been completely unintentional and guided by, um, guided by some forces that I'm trying to understand myself, but I am someone who, um, goes with what is in front, which there's, you know, I just have a deep sense of knowing what is next and it's never been a career, so to speak. I mean, it's nothing that I've never had a job that my mother would call a job. You know what I mean? So, um, by the way, I want to say, I love that Kanda. And, and when people ask me about my career, my answer often is the the strategy of my career. My answer is it's deeply unstrategic. Like (laughs) what I try to do is like Frederick Buechner, that Frederick Buechner quote, which is your vocation is where your deepest joy meets the world's greatest need. And like, I just sort of keep, you know, assessing where am I in that intersection? Am I still having fun? Am I still meeting a need? Right, right. But also very unstrategic. And having fun is really important. And that is one thing that when things start not to be fun for me, I mean, of course, life has, you know, it's ups and downs and, you know, and but when it really is kind of a a tone of un, of unhappiness, it's time to go because you know I really understand life is really um, good, even with everything. Life is basically good, and that's that's my take on it, and that's my experience. And so I kind of follow the good path, 
is what it's been for me. So, you know, it started out because I had a family, Peter, that was loving. I'm one of those people and I didn't understand how rare it was until I got to college and I realized people who were hating on their parents and hating on their family. And I was like, wow, how is that possible? I came from a extremely loving family. And um, so it began with that, just deep love and understanding that um, love is something that is important to, to feel, to be a part of and to, and to claim. And so I, I come from, a, particularly my mother, who is just, um, she's no longer with us on this side of the, of the plane, but she was amazing and really instilled in us. And I grew up at a very difficult time in American history. I mean, you know, I'm in my mid-60s right now. And so in 1968, you know, my family moved to, uh, from a Black and Mexican neighborhood in Southern California to an all-white neighborhood, completely white like maybe four black families in the entire town. And it was 1968 and it was difficult. So I grew up in a very difficult time uh, in American history. And at the same time at home, it was filled with love and appreciation. And I was taught one is to always, always, always stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves and to put yourself in that place be there with them. Do not bypass that path. That was always what I was instructed to do. My mother was extremely loving and extremely political, I would say, um, and taught us to to get involved in the world, you know. And so, um, with Katya, that, let me ask you: Why did why did your family move? Why did you know to get a better better situation? We lived in what was called, you know, it was it was it was very humble. I would call it. Some people may call it a ghetto. I would call it humble, right. um, you know. And so my father finally got to a place where he was making enough money, and my mother and they could move us into the literally the suburb was about it was only three to four miles away but completely different world. And so it got us into a school system, right? And all of that that they wanted. And I was 12, right, right, right. I was 12 when that happened. And so, yeah, and so, but raised with this intention of always being involved in the world and helping others, um, being a part of community. Community was very much a part of what, how we grew up. Um, in our old neighborhood, it was really community. Everybody raised everybody's kids. You know, we ran around and everybody was your mom and that kind of a thing. Um, when we moved, it changed because we were in this white neighborhood and nobody really wanted us there. Um, I'm so but curious I had about that. Because yeah, that, sure. feels, that feels really important because you, you yeah. know, you, you there's, there's ways, and I, I, I think this is something very interesting in society in general, which is there's ways where when when we become more successful, we move from one world into another and mm -hmm. something's lost at the same time yeah. as something's gained. Like it's yeah. there's like a little bit of a trade-off. And I'm and and also yeah. you know, you had an experience of being with everybody who, you know, like a big extended family to being the other. And I'm sort of curious about totally. that. Totally. Yeah. I gotta tell you, it was shocking. And it was the same year that my grandmother died too, who I was very close to. So 68, not to mention King, not to mention all the things that was happening in the larger context of America. It was a tough, tough year for me um, personally and for all of us, I think. So 
I was in shock to become the other. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. Um, again, I was 12 years old and I didn't know what was happening. I didn't quite understand what was happening. And so, but I was, you know, come home crying and, you know, kids didn't want, I, I was a very popular child in my other former life. And then I moved here and nobody really wants to be with me. And it was horrible to tell you the truth. And, and, that, um, and that, yeah. that, did, that didn't leave you angry or were you angry at the time? No, I wasn't angry. I was just sad as a child. You're just right. unhappy. Right. But I'm going to tell you what happened, Peter. What happened? It's, it's, the importance, what I'm going to point to is the importance of what one person can do to change another person's life. There was a young, there was a kid at my school who sat right behind me. His name was Richard Matthews. We were in alphabetical order, Mason and then Matthews, right? And Richard was like the most popular kid in the school. Everybody loved Richard. He was just this beautiful, you know, guy. And one day he tapped me on the shoulder and passed me a note. And I thought it was for somebody else. He said, no, this is for you. And I opened the note and it was like, you know, a caricature of our teacher. And he was, and we started laughing. And the next thing I know, he befriended me. And we became so close, then everybody else said, oh, I guess she's cool to be around, right? Richard fundamentally changed my life and my trajectory. And to tell you the truth, what happened with our friendship is he ended up, I went to Berkeley, UC Berkeley, he went to UC Irvine, he hated it. He came and moved in with me and, and, my, and my, um, my person at the time that I was living with. Richard and I just, I mean, a lifetime of, of love. I mean, he's passed away now, but he fundamentally changed my life by just recognizing me and saying, you are really cool and you are okay. And it brought everybody else in. And that gesture of not going, and he was really doing something very different than everybody else. And him doing that was something that has always stuck with me and been a part of my life. You know, it's a, I love that story, Kanda, and it and I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been thinking about like how many people, both in my field and in leadership, and like you know, and and companies are like, we're going to change the world. We're 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 you know, our goal is to you know fundamentally change the world. And then and then I look at some of these big companies, like I look at Facebook or I look at Google, and there's ways in which they've changed the world. But the question always for me a little bit is like, you know, good and bad. And then, and then I think, who's to say mm-hmm. that, that, you know, a, a, a word you share with someone in a grocery store doesn't fundamentally change the world right. you know, right. more or as much. And that, and like, so your story of Richard is like, it's like, yeah, we have this capacity just by the way we show up in relation to other people to fundamentally change the world. And maybe that. that is as grandiose as like starting a company and hiring a million people and changing the world in this very, very splashy way. I would have to say so, Peter. I mean, there's no question to me that the biggest fundamental change in the world is, you know, going next door to the woman who can't get out and, you know, taking her dog for a walk, going to get the groceries. You know, that is what we need to be doing. I think that, and particularly Americans, we have such a sense of this hugeness. Everything has to be so big to be impactful. You know, this thing about scaling. I think it's not about scaling. It's about going deep. 
it's not about scale to me. Scale going broad is, is we have it in our minds that that is what is fundamentally um, the best way to do anything is to scale. And it's like, what if it was, what if it wasn't about scale? What if it wasn't about scale? What if it was more about depth? And what if it was more about um, allowing ourselves to, no, not to mention the capacity of the world can't hold scale, right? I mean, we fundamentally have an end game here. The earth is only has so many resources, there's only so much that we can scale. And so instead, if we were to go deeper with each other, deeper with each other. I mean, because fundamentally, when I think about the, the thing that you're talking and that you're pointing to, Peter, you know, I see all of these incredible organizations doing great work on the planet. There's a lot of good work happening on the planet right now. Thank goodness, don't we need it? And at the same time, for me, mostly it's good work and it's still insufficient. It's insufficient primarily because a lot of the businesses and a lot of the organizations, the nonprofit for profits that are doing the work in the world, they may be working on um, things that have to do with, particularly right now with climate. Okay, we know that that's, we, we've got the IPCC report, you know, it was, it, was, it was real, it was real. And we have a lot of work to do. And at the same time, what we have done is we have bifurcated, we have separated, because we have this tendency to separate anyway, we have separated what we think of as environment and climate and what we think of as social justice. And until we bring those two things together and understand fundamentally that those two things are completely related, completely impacting each other, and until we're doing both the work of justice for people and for the planet, that is when, to me, we are actually on the right track. And so many people are not doing that. They're, 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 they have separated those two uh, as two different issues, and they're not. And so tie that in for me with what you were saying beforehand about, because I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I want to go to this place, and I, okay. I think it's really important, and I'm just missing the link, and I think there is one, uh, uh, between what we were saying about scale versus that like intimate connection. Yep. Yes, and, and this this sort of connection. Well, well, here's the here is the connection. The connection is that one scale to me goes from is a part of the the brain. If the brain uh -huh. is leading us to scale, the heart leads us to go deep with people. Right. Okay, right. and right. I believe that we are too centered in in the mind in the right. And, and, and scale is just like, let's just make this happen. Let's just, you know, it's, it's action oriented. It's like push it through, you know, it's push it through. pushing through, let's just make this happen versus sitting with, you know, sitting with is a different kind of, of, of space, like a whole nother kind of energy that we bypass and it has to do more with the heart. And so that is the difference to me. And so that when we look at things that have to do with justice, We've got to know each other in right. order to really do right. justice. We've got, I've got to sit with you and look you in the eyes and know you and be curious about you and your experience. So I, I love that. And I want to ask a question that I'm sitting with that I struggle with, um, which is the, the aspiration that your family had. 
to say, let's let, you know, like I want to create a better life for our kids and for like, and let's, let's kind of improve and, and, you know, right. and debate the word improve and, but let's, you know, like I, I want to sort of improve that. I want to get my kids in, in a better school system and I want to do that. And that's a little bit of the scale mindset, right? That's the mindset that says, like I like I want I want things to get better. I want to grow. I want to you know move from point A to point B, etc. And then we have this other um, very very heart driven mindset, and I don't think that they are in opposition to each other at all. I do think there's tension between them that says you know if I, I'm uh, you know to the extreme of scale is I'm going to really push myself to get better, to provide for my family, to, to move up in social strata, to like, you know, continue to make more and build more and have more. And, and then what we're talking about around the heart driven and also social justice and is actually I'm, I'm going to give up some of that in order no. to and so that's what i want to ask you about that tension okay. if there is so tension. yeah so there's there's really no tension because what you're what you're pointing to is the american um hyper individualism and that hyper individualism is saying it's about me it's about me what i want what i want to gather in my life or me and my family are those that are the are those who are um a part of what i consider me um, and that is that hyper individualistic, I'm going to make it, I'm going to gather things, right? I'm talking about the fact that at the same time, remember I said, at the same time that they moved to the suburbs so that we can have a better life, it was always about community. It was always about we. Okay, when you leave we for just me, that's where the problem lies. Okay, there's no tension behind holding me and holding we at the same time, but the American way is not about we it's about holding me. Okay, so that is what we need to learn. And my family had both. And that is why I think I hold this space of what do I need for myself and for those that are in the inner circle of of me and and the bigger circle of, of of me. And you don't give up on either. You don't give up on either. No, 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 you don't have to give up. I think that that, again, a false dichotomy, right? And it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the mindset of, of, um, well, you know, of capitalism, of racial capitalism, basically, and how we, and how capitalism shows up in this country and in this world right now. And that mindset and that uh, philosophy and, and that um, system has penetrated everything about how we go about our own personal lives and how it has shut out the idea of we for me now i i love i love what you're saying and i'm thinking about your career and i know you hate the word career so so yeah. that's only in retrospect so okay. thinking My about path. your journey your path thank you yes. sorry about that so i'm thinking that's about right. your path and yeah. i'm thinking you know you started out as an artist manager which in my head is like super me, not me for you, yeah, but yeah, me yeah, for yeah, them. Yeah. Like if I'm managing, you know, like when I think of, um, you know, when I think of my agent, you know, uh -huh. for my book agent or yeah. my speaking agent, they're yeah. all about how do I support Pete? It's all about me, right? Yeah. And you've moved through a path of, of Buddhism where they're like, yeah, 
you know, conceptually, there is no me at all in Buddhism to some degree. I may be misunderstanding it, but, oh, but you're, ultimately, but, <laughs> you're right. And to, and to leading Jubilee Justice, and yeah. and which I'm, which I, I want to kind of come to talk to. So I'm just curious whether your yeah. path kind of reflects that movement yeah. from like yeah, me. It does. To, you know, that's interesting. When I go back to when I was in the music industry, one of the things is, is that just culturally, you know, um, one of the things that was in my household that I didn't mention was a lot of music. And we danced and we played music and we bought records and that was when the record player and all that kind of good stuff. And so music was a huge part of my world and my home and always. And so when I got into the music industry, it was also, I worked with artists that um, the artists that I worked with were, were political by nature. Their music was not just, you know, the stuff that it means nothing. It was meaningful lyrics. And I worked with, a, a, I had a woman by the name of Karen Wheeler primarily that I worked with and um, and an a, 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 a all black female band out of Brooklyn at one point called Ibis. So all the music that I worked with was actually political music. And so it, it, it wasn't, you know, meaningless. And, and at the same time, you're right. Um, this idea of surrounding um, this artist that I believed in because the music would get to the world um, and to help it get to the world is what my goals were. Uh, and at the same time, it is very myopic and being in this thing with just an artist. And that is why I actually left the music industry. Well, and also, but your your point is also really great and well taken, which is like, you know, if, if you can support, I mean, it is, it does have that energy of scale a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, if you are going to support something, you want that something to have yeah. meaning in the world and connection. Have meaning. Yeah, I can't do anything that's meaningless. I just never have been able to do that, you know. And so even and art is an incredible part of our lives. Art is so important. And so being able to support artists is um, an art that tells a story, you know, art that actually reflects our society and helps us to grow is really an important aspect. And so that's the kind of art that I supported. So now I want to jump, I want to fast forward to sure. Jubilee Justice. And mm -hmm. and I, I'm i kind of skipping over your Buddhist journey, which I'm hesitant to do. So maybe you can, I'll, I'll ask this question and maybe you can, you know, take four steps back and start with your Buddhist journey. Um, I, I was in a room with you that I was invited to attend with Eleanor, with my wife, who is, um, doing a lot of anti-racism work, and she is a descendant of a. Um, uh, of, she has she has land in her family that was previously. Uh, I don't know what the right language is exactly, but it, you know, uh, previously slave owners. Um, yep, yep. And so, so you brought together this group on a plantation, um, with that that was I don't know maybe thirty of us, mm -hmm. and it was black, brown, white, uh, man, woman, young, uh, older, I'm putting myself in the older camp, descendants of slave owners, descendants of slaves, um, people from all over the country, US-based. But it was this, you know, rich and poor, like incredibly diverse group of people. And, and what you're doing in, in Jubilee Justice around land, wisdom, you know, spirit, money, 
is kind of tackling some of these issues that are very challenging yeah. for a lot of people to tackle and deal with. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, we are at a time in our country, certainly, and probably in the world, where yeah. we are, and especially leaders, are, um, are grappling with and facing and figuring out how to lead in a world that is appreciably more diverse than it was beforehand and as the diverse voices are coming in and the leaders that i work with certainly know that that's their responsibility and know that it's been a blind spot for many of them in the past and 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 are bringing it in but also struggle to know how to lead in that way and how to be in that conversation and you know to put a bunch of descendants of slave owners and descendants of slaves in a room together to go hey let's have a you know, a, a, a positive, productive conversation here about how to move forward yeah. is is challenging, especially if you don't want anybody to be silenced, right? Yeah. Like yeah. anybody right. to be silenced. Yeah. And so I think that's really, really hard. And so my question to you very simply is, how do you do it? <laughs> but, you know, but I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, yeah. what your thoughts are around all of that. Right. So um, I don't know how to do it. I mean, I do it and I don't think that I, you know, I, I know how to do it. I OK, let me get this right. I do know how to do what I do, whether there is harm. I can't control that. Um, I try, my goal is to create the least amount of harm as possible. And as human beings, we are messy people. We have completely messed up this whole thing around race. My conversations with Jubilee Justice are, I say it's at the intersection of land, race, money, and spirit. Land, race, and money are three very, very um, divisive elements that have happened in this country and that this country was born on. The stolen land, the stolen people, um, all around money. And, um, and so it is, it is definitely courageous to come into that space on a plantation in Louisiana with a mixed group of people as diverse as what you pointed to having this conversation. Um, first, it begins with people who are at least looking in that direction. Okay, that's what it begins with. If there are people who are not even like, I don't, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not up for this. This is not anything that I am interested in, in figuring out in this lifetime then you have no place. I, I, those, somebody else works with those folks. Yeah, that's I interesting. Folks. I, that's a very, yeah. very, I want to just sort of highlight that point. Sure. Um, uh, you know, we were talking beforehand, I, I have a new book that's coming out called You Can Change Other People. And right. our very, very first premise is you need permission to be in the conversation, that you have to approach this not that's as a critic, but as an ally to say, like, we are going to engage in a conversation together. Right. Are you willing to do that? And so that's you're saying right. that your first step in this is to say, first step. here's the room. Only come if you want to be in this conversation. That's right. That's right. And, and, and the thing that's interesting, Peter, is that a lot of people are wanting to be in the conversation right now. They're afraid. They don't have it all together. Nobody does. I don't. None of us do. And yet they're willing to and to step in. And so those are the people, whatever, wherever you are on the spectrum, you know, you can, you know, wherever you are, but as long as you're on that spectrum, 
then we can we can work together. And so that's the beginning, like you said, that is the beginning. And then from there, um, you know, everybody talks about safe space. I don't think there is such a thing as safe space. What's safe for me is not safe for you. What we try to do is create um, courageous space. Um, we create a space where spirit, again, so land, race, and money, and spirit is that which connects us all and holds the, the, the whole container. Understanding that you're not going to get out of this alive without me also being thriving to some degree, okay? Mm -hmm. That our liberation is tied together. Mm -hmm. It's like a boat that is sinking. Somebody is not going to be at the head of the boat and somebody at the back of the boat and think that the whole thing is, is like, oh, I'm at the, you know, I'm not going to go down. Everybody's going to go down or everybody rises. And so I am trying to create the conditions for us all. First of all, like I said earlier, if I don't have the curiosity to know who you are, to look you in the eyes and to say, you know, tell me your story. So everybody's got a story. Tell me your story and really be curious about it. That changes people. That's transformation. Mm -hmm. When I hear your story and you hear mine. Right. And so that's what we do. And we try to create the space where everybody's voices, it doesn't always happen. People get harmed, you know? And when I'm aware of it, if I'm aware of it, you know, I try to do whatever I can to, um, to see how to sit with that. And can people sit with that? Because I necessarily, you know, sometimes you just have to sit with harm and, and go in and see, why is this harming me? Mm -hmm. What is my participation in that? What do I need to look at? What do I need to let go of? And so we do deep inner work. This is not e external work. This is inner work that then reflects outwardly mm -hmm. by looking internally and saying, what is the work that I need to do as an individual? And sometimes it's, it's hard to, to, um, to actually admit that this is my stuff and, and that's okay. But a seed has been planted. Mm -hmm. And who knows later what happens. What's the outcome that you're hoping to achieve with Jubilee Justice? And is that even a question that you think around? Um, you know, that's a good question, whether there is a, a, a goal. Um, this is what I know, Peter. The world is on fire in every corner of it. We know that we are living at a very difficult time on the planet. And as I said earlier, I believe that the kinds of transformations that need to happen have to be with each other in order to do the other work. We have to, we have to see each other and be with each other and know how to be with each other in a way that allows us to actually um, open our hearts, quite frankly. And so that is the point for me, <laughs> you know, can we open our hearts with each other? The enslaver, the descendant of the enslaver and the descendant of a formerly enslaved person. Can we open our hearts to each other? Can we have compassion for each other? Can we be in the same space and figure out? Because until we do that work, we can do 
and 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 it's not easy and it's not the first step at all okay i think that um 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 affinity group spaces have Mm -hmm. to happen affinity group spaces whether it's the jewish space right or whether it's the black space or the female the women's space or the male space we need those spaces to do our our work and as we do that because i don't think we can wait until you know something is complete when there's never an end it's always it's ongoing learning but as we do that and as we get to a place internally each of us individually get to a place where i say okay I still need to be in this space. I can't be in that joint space yet and honor that. Or I can be in this joint space now. Okay. Right. right. And so I'm creating the space for those people who are ready to be in that that joint space together now. Um, I, I have two questions that, uh, that are coming up for me. One is um, uh, there are things that people say that become sort of hot points. Like there's things that, there's even words that people use mm-hmm. that kind of uh, make a space either less friendly or or might bring, you know, might might create more conflict. And I'm, and I'm not thinking about um, outright obvious racism, you know, calling someone right. a name, it's like that. But right. I'm thinking like, Here's an example. You you mentioned earlier in this conversation stolen land, mm-hmm. right? That's like a little bit of a hot point. Like some people will think we're on stolen land. Some people will think we're not on stolen land. Or some you know, or some people might think, yeah. you know, all land is stolen land. Like there's no land yeah. that's not stolen land. Like none of the land. And so I'm curious about how you support a. Mm-hmm healthy, constructive conversation around sure. some of that stuff. And then my second yeah, question, yeah. and I probably shouldn't double a question with that because that's a big enough topic in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But this might, the reason I'm asking the second question is because it might be related. You know, I'm a white male mm-hmm. in involved in these conversations. And I'm curious, like, and a lot of leaders I work with are white men and, mm-hmm. and, and white women, but I'm curious about your advice as to how somebody like me can be most effective yeah. in the conversation. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me okay. stop there. Uh, that, those are questions. really good questions and I'm happy to jump into this. Um, so let me be clear. As I do the work that I do, I do not feed into what is called white fragility. I don't support white fragility because white fragility is a way of saying I am not going to actually see the truth of 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 what has happened, whether it's in this country or on the planet, and that my fragile um, response needs to be protected and so and, and you, you should protect me. Right. That is not where you learn. Learning is in that place of discomfort. The comfort zone that you're speaking of is a place of, you know, we can slap each other on the back and we can stay comfortable as long as we want to. But where do we actually learn is in that discomfort zone when we are actually facing truths, okay? And what I say is this, learn, learn. What needs to happen with white folks in America, I would say, is to actually, first of all, a little bit of humility goes a long way to say, I don't know this. 
I don't know this. I may be the top of my game as the head of CEO of this, that, and the other, but I don't know this. So it takes humility to say, first of all, I don't know this. Right. Which also takes confidence. That humility takes confidence. It it, it does. And it takes curiosity. Again, I go back to the word curiosity, because as long as I'm not, if I'm not curious about it, then I'm just going to leave my hyper-individualistic life and make sure that my family is fine. Right. Okay. That is not going to do anything to solve the world's problems, nor your own, quite frankly. And so what I am saying is that humility and curiosity can lead you down the path of learning. And learning, what I mean is that there are so there is so much information that you don't know. And you may think, you know, you there there are I, I, I go back when I just said white fragility. You know, there's the book that Robin D'Angelo wrote called White Fragility. Okay. That book, some people hate it, some people love it. It has changed people's lives. All right. Other people say it's too, it's too rough, it's just too much. You know, Robin, you know, she holds no punches. She talks about the experience of being white in America and what white supremacy is. And when I say the words white supremacy, I say stolen land. White supremacy is not something that is um, an emotional triggered. I mean, it, it may trigger you and I and, and, and that's fine. I'm fine with it triggering you because what I'm hoping that you will do is look and understand what is white supremacy? What is it? It is the fabric under which this entire country has been built. It has privileged people with white bodies over people with non-white bodies on every social fabric and institution that exists. People think of white supremacy as, oh, I don't wear a white hat. I'm not a Ku Klux Klan. I'm not a proud boy. Those are the extremes. That's not white supremacy. That's madness too, yes. But white supremacy is actually that system. It is a system upon which this country has been built and continues to be built. This is this is very helpful. And and um, so I, I want to reconcile this with a a view that I hold. Okay. That, that may be wrong. Okay. Um, that change doesn't happen in the context of shame. That basically if I feel shame, which is one of the hardest Mm -hmm. emotions to feel, I will block it by going into either denial or defensiveness, right? Because it's just too painful to feel shame. So so if if I'm, you know, I've I've been in this conversation long enough and it doesn't trigger me, you know, uh, stolen land, white supremacy, racism, It doesn't, that doesn't trigger me at this Mm -hmm. point. Mm I don't know, it might at some point again, I don't know, but it doesn't, it doesn't trigger me. But I know that is, if I'm going to, if I'm going to label someone as white supremacist or racist, or even fragile, Mm -hmm. um, that, that there's some small group of people for whom they will say yes, and that's going to instigate my change. But there's some large group of people who will go into shame and then denial and defensiveness. And what I wonder about is your view on 
because you're you're I'm hearing your view around this is the reality that I see racism, white supremacy, stolen land. Um, yeah. And and I also see how easily people will just step out of the conversation sure. in that language because they can't they can't be in that conversation for them. Like they don't have the capacity to be in that conversation. And so I'm curious about. Like, you know, do you feel like, I guess you do, that the trade-off is worth it because that's, you know, that's the truth that you see and that's the conversation that needs to be on the table? Or are there other ways of engaging in the conversation that are um, equally true and, and is there a usefulness to create more comfort around the conversation to bring more people into the conversation that might otherwise not be in it. Is my question making sense? I don't know if my yeah, question. I totally okay, get good. your question. I totally get your question. It's very interesting because, um, yeah, um, I, I, what's coming up for me is I don't know if you know who Resma Minikin is. He wrote a book. You should read his book called um, My Grandmother's Hands. I oh, I know recommend. the book. I do, I do know, know the book. book. I haven't okay. read it, but I know the book. All right. Read that. Read that book. He was in an interview with Krista Tippett. Oh. Oh, in fact, I heard that interview and I loved right? it. I thought it was a great, that so a great I do know who that is. Sorry, I wasn't yes. connecting okay. the name. Yes. And I thought and so it was a terrific point, interview. It was a terrific interview. And I have a podcast where I interviewed Krista. And I pointed to at one moment in there when Resma mentioned the word white supremacy, I think it was white supremacy. And she had the same reaction. She kind of said, well, isn't that triggering? Don't you want more people in if rather than, you know? And it was a moment that was very interesting. And I want you to go back and look at that, at that. It's on it's on the On Being website. Um, I love Krista and she's just brilliant. And it was interesting to see that trip over that moment. You know, um, again, I think that what you're what you're pointing to, Peter, is can you keep this comfortable for white people to and to explore um, all these real issues that we need to explore in order to make the change that needs to happen? Can we make this comfortable for white people? Well, I want to say I, I want to shift the question a little bit. Okay. Can, can we make it comfortable enough for white people that it 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 brings the people that we want in the conversation in the conversation. So maybe I'm saying the well, same we want thing. everybody in the conversation. There's right. no one outside of the conversation, right. right? I don't think there's anyone I can say no. You, I don't want you in this conversation, right? We're right, right, the whole right, world, right. Right? right? And so, um, and so, shame, shame, shame is so interesting because I honestly think that shame, um, one of the things that shame does, is it's a tool to keep me out of the conversation. Oh, that we use, that I might use sh the feeling of shame to allow myself to not be in the conversation. Oh, that's it's interesting. A tool. It's a tool right. to stay out of the conversation. Right. I'm, this is shame now, I'm out. Right. Um, and, you know, dealing with shame is something that we talk about and we will be talking about in this course, we're getting ready to do a two-year course. Um, with people in Jubilee Justice Journeys, that's going to be quite interesting. And shame is going to be a big issue that we talk about is what is shame? What is shame? What is shame? How is it used? How is it useful? How do we, how do we deal with shame? How do we let go of shame? And, um, and I tell you the antidote for me for shame is self-compassion. Mm -hmm. In my own experience. 
Self-compassion so, has so one of the things that go of shame. One of the things that you're saying is it, it's good to be in the conversation and to feel shame because that's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity to grow. It's an yeah. opportunity to grow. It's right. not like, oh, I feel shame. So let that be the the border. Like if I feel shame, then I get to get out of the circle. Right. Right. I also, I just want to say that I also see shame. Like there is, I love what you're saying and it's very instructive. Like shame is if, when I feel shame, that's a tool that I use to allow myself to be out of the conversation. Shame is also used to keep other people out of the conversation and to keep yep. their views out of the conversation. So if I shame you, part of yep. that is a tool to keep your voice from yep. being heard. That's exactly so right. That Shame is a tool to keep you out of the conversation, period, right. either right. way. And right. it's um, and it works. It works. Right. It is it is really it, it, it has its function and it works well. And how do we dismantle that? How do we dismantle that? So there's it's complex. Nothing is one dimensional. Obviously, you get you know, it's like you pull a thread, you pull a thread and you go, oh, now I have this to deal with. Oh, and now I have this. And so, you know, the, this entire life that we live is this completely the complexity is just, you know, deep and wide. And at the same time, it does not mean that, OK, so then let me just, you know, live this safe life and move to the suburbs and build a wall and have a lot of money and bring my kids to make sure that they go to good schools. And, you know, you can choose that. A lot of people do. Well, and what you've described in your story is your family chose that, but they didn't choose to shut themselves out, meaning they chose that better life right. and the better schools and kind of moved to this other neighborhood, but they mm -hmm. did it in a way that that actually isolated you somewhat, but also <laughs> kept your connections and try, you know, kind of bring Absolutely. that in. And it was, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And still still centering community. We have to center the we. And right. when we center the we, we understand that my shame and my 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 I-ness going right. now into Buddhism, right? My meanness right. is 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 only um a, a fractal of the whole. Right. Right. And and that the whole is is um I hope is what we are here to be on this planet with each other and not just human whole, not right. just human beings, but all right. of the sentient beings on the planet that we share this planet with, that we have had created the hierarchy of who's on top, right? right? right. And that whole hierarchical thinking and that kind of categorization that we have done as human beings, whether it's white men is on top, whether it's men are on top, or you know, whether it's straight community is on top, whether it's the abled bodies are on top or whether it's humans over all other beings. We right. have done a great deal, a great job of stratifying and creating hierarchy. And until we work towards bringing that, um, understanding that, that uh, again, going back to our liberation is tied. Right. Um, then that's the work, that's the work. Right, and I, and I wanna bring into this conversation also the complexity of it. Like, to, you yeah. know, like for myself, I look at myself and I say, okay, white man, you mm -hmm. know, with, with some power and some wealth. And then, yeah. and then I think, well, you know, my family was thrown out of, every single generation of my family was thrown out of a country. 
like, you know, because we're Jewish and because we were thrown out of Syria and Iraq and and Egypt and and the Holocaust. And like, so we never lived in one place, uh, you know, and right. as, I, as I go back. Right. And so it's like, well, there's a way in which like I have tremendous amount of sort of power and 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 social uh, hierarchy. And there's a way also in which and, and that and, and what I'm about to say doesn't negate any of that. And, right, you know, right. what also is true is, you know, I have an insecurity and I have a sense of like, this isn't, you know, like I'm not solid in this place and yeah. I better move to the neighborhood that will keep me safe because I've, right. um, and then the other thing I want to say is I, I want to be clear and I know you don't think this way and I, I want to be like clear around language. I mean, I don't know that you don't think this way, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that you don't think this way. You know, it's, it's easy to interpret the you know, you can move to the suburb and build your walls and et cetera. And there's a certain dismissiveness to that. And at the same time, I think to bring people into the conversation to, um, to <laughs> empathize with like understanding why people want to do that. Like I like yeah. like understanding that and 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 still bringing them into the conversation, like not not giving anybody yeah. a buy, but saying there's all sorts of reasons why people might move into the suburbs and build their walls and and it and and it's and like to keep like to keep inviting like not to dismiss that but to keep inviting everybody into that conversation sure i mean i don't i don't you know i don't throw that way i don't mean to be glib but at the same time um you know it's um sure there's reasons why people do all of that and again it is when i think about the communities of color that have no resources to do anything of the, that nature even close to that nature right, right. who right. don't get the green spaces who live in a concrete right. jungle who live with food apartheid who are um completely um um under-resourced and and right. um it's like that is true too and and so you know we have this ability depending upon the resources that we have acquired and the mindset that we have acquired um to make a lot of choices right and some people have fewer choices than others Right, and right, so right. it is a choice to be able to do that. And I get that. And who knows? I mean, would I do that? Who knows? You know, I don't think so. It's not it's not my it's not my path. And I don't begrudge anybody that is. I absolutely want everybody in the conversation. And I want us to look at the choices, because sometimes we think we're in a society that has built. Oh, uh, I was just talking to to my partner the other day, how, you know, when you get a certain amount of money, then you are, you better buy a house, right? And then you buy a house and then, well, you better get, you know, you got to put your money in here. You got to, and all these things, the next thing you know, you are in a system that you may not have wanted to be a part of, but you're right. in it and you're in deep. And all of these are choices. And we, right. and because, you know, um, that is what we value. Again, I need to look at what do we value as a society? We value money and we value more money and we value more, more money. Right. And so with that value system, if we as individuals adopt, fully adopt that value system, that money is the, the, the aggregating money is, is what is um, the best path to take 
in this short journey that we have on the planet, then certain choices will be made that help support that. Right. Right. And then if we don't, other choices will be made. But what I want to do is just make people look at, not make people, help people, assist people in looking at that these are choices. It's not automatic. It's not like this is the default. We actually made choices to do these things. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll close it there. Uh, Kanda, yeah. I've been having so much fun. I know I we know. went way oh over what we were going to go over. We have been speaking with Kanda Mason. She is a social entrepreneur, earth and social justice activist, and spiritual teacher. She's president of Jubilee Justice. Kanda, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I've so, so, so enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me, Peter. My, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you can't change other people. You can only change yourself. Well, it's not true. And in fact, if you're a leader or a manager, it's your obligation to change other people, to help them become better at what they do. And if you just care about the people in your life, then it's your longing to help them change in ways that support their own growth and development and become the best people that they can be. So in my new book, which is now available for pre-order, I wrote it with my friend Howie Jacobson. It's called You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Colleagues, Employees, Even Family Up Their Game. We talk about ways of becoming an ally instead of a critic and to help people make the kinds of changes in their lives that make their lives better. You can get it wherever books are sold. To find out more, go to bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book one word. So that's bregmanpartners.com forward slash N-E-W-B-O-O-K. I hope you get the book and I hope it helps you to have more effective conversations with the people in your life.